Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. A science story, huh? Is NYU scientist the... And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Annalene Newitz. The story was recorded in October 2014 at the Rickshaw Stop in San Francisco, California, as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. So I'm just going to start with a confession, which is that The reason I became a science journalist is because I have this burning lust to visit as many scientific labs as possible, and especially labs that are completely unique and could not exist anywhere but where they are. So a few months ago, I was incredibly excited because I had an opportunity to visit this archaeological dig in central Turkey, which is called Çatalhöyük. And it's the site of a Neolithic city where people lived about 9,000 years ago. And I should say, I'm calling it a city, but the reason why this site is so fascinating for archaeologists and why I was interested in it is that it's kind of in this weird place in between being a village and a city. And it's, it's this kind of lost moment in the history of cities, and it's very unique. It's a unique form of large-scale human settlement. So just to give you an idea, um, at the time people were living in Chitalhoyuk, remember, 9,000 years ago, um, they'd settled, they settled there for about 2,000 years. And at any given time, um, there were about 1,000 to 5,000 people living there. And the typical human settlement at that time was a village, which had about, say, 100 people or less in it. So it was really the megacity of its era. And it was also designed in a way that's very different from any other kinds of settlements that we know of. They didn't have streets. People built their homes sort of like a honeycomb, right jammed up next to each other. And at the dig site, which is enormous, they've excavated this huge amount. I mean, you have to imagine the, um, the area they've excavated is bigger than this space, which is really quite huge for an archaeological dig like this. And you can see how people got around in the city was that they walked over the roofs and in through doorways in the roof and sort of down these um, 
uh, ladders to get into their homes. And there were no rooms in this city because uh, each family unit had basically one room. They don't find really big mansion rooms. Again, unlike cities that we have today, there's no sort of big giant rooms and little tiny ones. It was all pretty uniform. But the thing that's most fascinating about Chatalhuyuk is what they did with their dead. They buried their dead in their beds and in the beds that they slept in. And when you look at these rooms that the people lived in, you can see that they've divided their houses up, each room, and they're pretty small. Imagine like this, a little bit smaller than this stage. And one part of the room is clearly, it's like the living room. You know, they have the hearth and they have some chairs or benches and some decorations. And the other side of the room is the bedroom. And this is an area that they kept very clean. They plastered it with nice white plaster, which was used a lot in the building of Chatalhuyuk. And they created these elevated platforms that were beds. And when the archaeologists at this dig start excavating these houses, because they're digging down deeper to find the layers of houses, what they found was that these beds were full of skeletons, and sometimes over a dozen skeletons. And they, as I'm there, you know, we're, we're walking through the dig site, and you know, I'm with a bunch of archaeologists, and we're looking down into these rooms, and I'm realizing like all of these little wells that I'm seeing in the floor are places where they've excavated skeletons. And one of the things they find as well isn't it, they don't just find skeletons, but they find that people actually dug these skeletons up during the time they were living there, and they would often take out the skulls and plaster the skulls and use them as decorations. They'd trade them back and forth. It's really common to dig up a skeleton and find, like, somebody else's skull in there or, like, a couple other skulls in there just hanging out with the skeleton. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, I'm looking at this, and it's I'm like, what would it be like to live in a culture where you sleep on top of dead bodies every night. Like, what what kind of culture would that be? Like, what would it feel like? Like, it's so alien to what I've experienced in my culture. And, you know, this is, of course, a question that's super interesting to me as a writer. I'm working on a book about cities, and, you know, I'm there because I'm a fan of, of science. But it was also really a personal question for me, too, because... Um, my father committed suicide actually right around this time last year. And at the time I went to Chitalhuyuk, it was really on my mind. I was just, I was thinking a lot about death and I was, I was really confused about what had happened. I didn't know why he'd done it. And, um, and it was, you know, I, what I did, like a lot of people who were in mourning and who were trying to deal with sadness and confusion, I was decided to just focus on things that were meaningful to me, you know, to, to keep going with work and, and to go out to this lab. And, you know, I thought it would kind of take my mind off things, but of course, you know, I get there and I'm in this city, which is basically carpeted with dead people. So I can't get away from it. And so I spent about three days there, uh, you know, investigating the ruins and looking all through the evidence that people had gathered there and going to the labs and talking to archaeologists about what it all meant and what they thought was was going on in this city. And I started to get to see this pattern emerging in how archaeologists would respond. Like, they'd sort of tell me a little bit about their theories, and they would do this thing that I started to call the archaeologist shrug. And they would, they would tell me what they thought, and they would just kind of shrug, and they'd be like, but we just don't know. 
And part of the reason that it's so difficult to understand the people of Chitalhoyuk is because they didn't have writing yet. This was a civilization that existed before writing. So they left behind a lot of stuff. They actually had fired ceramics, which is an incredibly important technology. And if, if you ever talk to archaeologists about, um, about fired ceramics, they get really excited. It's like a whole big deal. Um, and they also had art. They left behind a lot of clay figurines of kind of voluptuous naked women. And they had all this symbolism, and they had these bizarre funeral practices but we just don't know because we have no writing like what they actually thought about it. Like, why were they burying people under their beds? Um, and one group of archaeologists, they actually got into kind of a fight um, at one point. Um, and one group of archaeologists really believed that that these burial practices had to do with um, like ancestor worship, basically, and that it was a kind of very early form of religion or spirituality. Um, and the other group, um, while not completely disavowing the possibility that it was religion, they felt like it was more like people learning what history was. You know, they're living at this really early phase in human civilization. They don't have writing, but they want to hold on to their relationship with people who've gone before. And so maybe these skulls, the skull trading thing, maybe it was a way of kind of telling historical stories. And, you know, the more these guys are arguing with each other, um, the more I'm getting really like kind of angry and frustrated. Like I'm, you know, it's like there's these people that lived here for two fucking thousand years and we don't even know why they buried people under their beds. Like what the hell is going on here, people? Um, you have grants, you know, you're supposed to be figuring this out. And I really, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of, I'm getting like really like anxious and kind of pissed off. And I realize, okay. <laughs> I'm actually not pissed off at Neolithic civilization, all right? I'm actually upset because, like, a lot of these questions that I have and that, that the archaeologists have are questions that I have about my dad. Like, I have no idea why he took those pills instead of deciding to stay alive. He left a shitload of writing behind, a lot of writing about a lot of things, and I still don't even understand it. I just, it's this mystery that, that I'm never going to be able to solve. And, you know, archaeologists, they have a way of dealing with this. Even though Chitalhoyuk is a city that is this kind of missing link, um, you know, it's a city where once people abandoned it, they went off into village life. Like, they never lived that way again. They went back to villages, and then, you know, centuries later, we see the emergence of these new... Uh, large civilizations, and they look like the cities we have now. They have streets, they have writing, they have ziggurats and pyramids, just like we have. Um, and and it, it's, there's this missing link. But archaeologists will say, well, look, you know, we, just don't, we just don't know. And they kept, the longer I was there and the more I talked to people, the more I realized that archaeologists work really hard to honor the dead by not projecting their modern viewpoint onto these ancient people, to not project their ideas of religion, their ideas of family and community and death onto them. Because the more you fill up those empty spaces that you don't understand with your own preconceptions, that's, those are the moments when you erase the truth of history. So you have to have that sense of not knowing. And if you think about it, it's kind of like saying the way you honor the dead isn't just by 
you know, listing their accomplishments and naming all the artifacts that they left behind, but you also honor them by admitting that they've left this void, like a void in meaning, um, that there's this emptiness that's, that's, that's always going to be there. And that's how I've decided to honor the dead in my life. I've given up trying to figure out why my dad did what he did. I'm never going to know. I'm never going to know how he was feeling or why he decided to do, why he decided to end his life. But I think, and that's, well, I should just say that's hard. You know, it's very, very hard to feel that way. And I watched these archaeologists at Chitalhoyuk, you know, going down into this amazing city. They're surrounded by dead people, full of, um, and it's, the city is just full of all this amazing culture and all these artifacts. And they're having to just restrain themselves so much from projecting their ideas onto this unknown civilization that they don't understand. But I think that's really the key. I think that moment when you admit that you can't fully understand the dead and that you never will, that that's, that's really the moment when you honor them the most. Thanks. That was Annalie Newitz. Annalie is the editor-in-chief of io9 and the author most recently of Scatter, Adapt, Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you love the podcast, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Rickshaw Stop for hosting the show, to the Barrier Science Festival and Kishore Hari for incredible help, and to Ruins for still being there to teach us things. Thanks for listening. <laughs>